Welcome to this episode of Church Grammar. Before I introduce my guest today, I just want to say something. I've received a lot of great feedback on this podcast so far. I've been super thankful for the amount of people who are listening, the amount of people who are reaching out and giving feedback. It's been entirely positive. I have had a few people ask, um, you know, hey, I didn't really agree with this person here, or why did you have this person on, considering how different you are theologically, or that was a good interview, but I really didn't like this, this, and that about what that person said. I just want to say, for those of you who are listening, that's exactly the kind of feedback that I love. The, uh, I like that podcast, but I didn't really agree here or there. Because what I've said at the outset, if you listen to the introductory episode, is that I want to have people on who I disagree with and who have different theological viewpoints than me in an exercise of theological humility to learn and to listen to them and to have my audience be exposed to them and their ideas. And so this interview with John Bear is going to be similar. There might be some things as far as Trinitarian language that I might disagree with him about or that I might want to think about more, might even be a better word. But that doesn't mean that he's not worth listening to. It doesn't mean that he's not one of the best patristic scholars in the world. And it doesn't mean that we can't learn things from him, even as we may disagree in certain places. And so that is my guest today, John Baer. He teaches up at St. Vladimir's Orthodox Seminary in New York, one of the foremost scholars on particularly Nicaea and the development of doctrine in the first several hundred years of the church. We have a great conversation about that. We talk about uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church that he's a part of. Talk about a couple of other things uh, related to the Trinity and doctrine and uh, the Gospel of John. And I hope that you'll enjoy this conversation. And like I said, be challenged and maybe disagree in some places. And that's great because we want to learn from those who we disagree with. And so that's what we're trying to do here on the Church Grammar Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by B&H Academic. You can check out all of B&H's books at bhacademic.com. We're also brought to you by the Christian Standard Bible. That is a Bible translation that is faithful to the original languages without sacrificing clarity. Find out more about that translation at csbible.com. And now, my conversation with John Bear. But first, no big deal. I'm here on the uh, beautiful campus of St. Vladimir's Orthodox Seminary in Yonkers, New York, which I didn't know Yonkers, New York existed until just now. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, we've got a poster now, home lost in Yonkers. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, and this um, I'm speaking with John Bear here, uh, who's a professor here at St. Vladimir's. Yeah, I actually got lost getting here. You had to go pick me up on the top mm-hmm. of a hill that That's was overlooking right. the campus. Yes. Yeah. So I was fenced off from climbing down to you. But uh, Well, let's talk a little bit first just about your, your background. So I was born in England many years ago now um, and I actually come from Russian emigration stock on my father's side so my great-grandfather he was living in Europe at the time of the revolution he was sent, sent as a priest to England in 1926 uh, my father was a priest uh, I grew up in the Orthodox Church on my mother's side it's Swiss German her parents met as students of Karl Barth in, in Basel wow. and then he ended up being a Lutheran minister in Hanover for many years overseeing the whole region. Uh, My mother came to England in the 1950s, met my father, um, and thereafter. So I grew up in England, born in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on. Brought up in the church, um, but like most children, especially children of priests in England in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 
Uh, we all stopped going to church during our teenage <laughs> years. My parents took the line that as soon as we were able to make up our own minds and didn't need a babysitter to, well, to look after us when we were at home, we could then make up our own minds and choose whether to go or not. We all stopped going to church, mm. age 12, 13. Um, I got into all sorts of other things. In the age of 17, about a week or two after my birthday, I woke up one morning and said, enough of all of this, I'm off to a monastery. Wow. And my parents let me drop out of school. I'd really been teaching myself and passed various exams, having taught myself. And my parents let me drop out of school. I wasn't intending to become a monk, but just to, I needed to sort my life out. I was doing all sorts of things I don't want to talk about here, <laughs> although I talk about it quite often. And they, they were thankful that you were just willing to, to go yeah. to the monastery. They didn't care, I, I, they didn't care they, what they, happened. You know, uh, yeah. Um, they, were, they were trusting in God enough to know that something's being worked out in all of this. Yeah. And they knew that I was capable of keeping on teaching myself and passing the A-levels and that kind of thing. So I went off to a monastery, a really, really beautiful monastery in Essex, Orthodox monastery in Essex in England, um, which had been started by Archimandrite Sophoni. Mm. And I was there for five months, I think. Then <clears throat> came back home, finished whatever I needed to do for the schooling, went to university in London, uh, did philosophy, and then ended up doing doctoral work in Oxford with Metropolitan Callistos. Mm -hmm. Uh, Callistus Ware um, and then in 90 where I met my wife in Oxford we had rooms next door to each other in college then in 93 I was invited to come and teach here I was finishing my doctoral work in Oxford Father John Meindorf the previous professor of patristics had died just died suddenly and they had a program of trying out different people for a couple of years to see who would fit mm. they invited me to come 93 to 94 other people 94 95 and I came back here permanently in '95. I've yeah. been teaching here since. So, did you ever have any any uh, part time teaching when you were in Oxford? Did you tutor or lecture there? Is this it, the only place? Not really, I, I did a little bit. My wife did more of that, but it wasn't really the kind of thing one. It, it, it wasn't structured that way. Okay. Yeah, unlike say at an American school now, if you're doing doctoral work, you get to do TA and you right. get to do your own classes. So it, it just wasn't structured that way. <coughs> it was three years of completely unadulterated research. Yeah. Yeah. fantastic. Which is not great. Yeah, I mean, which is not terrible. That's great. Not yeah. In Oxford, in the Bodleian. Yeah. You all know Oxford from Harry Potter movies. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> it yeah. was like that. Well, I spent I spent two weeks in, in Oxford uh, for, had sort of a, a honors trip mm -hmm. that we could take when I was in seminary. And yeah. we met with a tutor every day. Yes. And I uh, got to write papers and meet with the tutor, and I was like, "Man, I wish yeah. I wish that my seminary was set up more this way because so, I loved it." So basically, you know, I did have to do an M because I did philosophy, then I was going to do theology. I did an MPhil in Eastern Christian mm -hmm. Studies, and that basically meant meeting with Callistos once a week for two years. Yeah, right. And they're doing my work in between. Right. Yeah. yeah. And we go father by father through the whole tradition, mm -hmm. and that was it. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So how did you how did you get into being interested in patristics? Was that an early interest for you, or did somebody turn that on for you? So when I came back to the Orthodox Church in, when I was seventeen, um, I hadn't been reading anything at all in all of that. And when I went to the monastery, I didn't read anything. It was just immersion in the liturgical prayer for life of the monastery. I worked in the garden in the mornings and did academic work in the afternoon and so on. And then I started reading. I'd always been philosophically inclined, and I started reading modern theologians, and from that. I could see how much they were referring to the fathers and how intriguing they were, and from that I launched into that. And then what did you write your, your first couple of theses and then your dissertation on? Because you've done sort of a, a lot of Irenaeus and Yeah, like so that. my doctoral work was on Irenaeus and Clement, mm -hmm. Clement of Alexandria, um, and it was on the question of asceticism and anthropology, and it was mm -hmm. tackling 
interacting with people like Michel Foucault and Peter Brown and all sorts of people who are working on asceticism in the early church. But really the question they're asking, and it, they've remained with me ever since, is what it is to be human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just simply what it is to be human. Mm -hmm. When Irenaeus says that glory of God is a living human being, which is such a beautiful statement. He doesn't mm -hmm. say, you know, the duty of a human being is to glorify God and yeah. all that kind of thing. No, the glory of God is a living human being. Mm -hmm. And when you realise that by living human being he means a martyr, mm. <laughs> then, you, then you know you, it, it. It, it turns everything upside down yeah. and inside out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. And then the, I'm, I'm so thankful to Metropolitan Callistus for having directed me towards Irenaeus. Mm. Yeah, he knew that Irenaeus was fantastic for anthropology and those kind of questions, but really with Irenaeus you're standing at the beginning of the theological tradition. Mm. Yeah. Obviously, you've got writers before him, you know, you've got Justin, you've got St. Ignatius, you've got a number of other, other things. Of course, you've got the, the apostles and evangelists. But all of their work, the, the, the apostolic fathers, the apologists and so on, really are occasional pieces. Mm. With Irenaeus, for the first time, you've got the whole spectrum of theology laid out. Yeah. Not in book one and two of Against the Heresies, and if anybody's listening, if you want to read Irenaeus, don't start with book one and two. It's all about <laughs> the Gnostic systems of thought, and it's, you, you, you won't get through it. Um, but book three, four, and five, mm -hmm. he's the first one to use all the writings, I think apart from Third John, as scripture, all yeah. writing the New Testament as scripture. He's the first one to articulate a canon of truth, you know, a principle, a criterion, explain what he means by tradition, and then give a whole picture of everything from Adam to Christ from the beginning to the end yeah. how the whole economy of God fits together as one single economy mm -hmm. with you know a full presentation about who Christ is what the role of the spirit is how we're led to the father you know the whole thing yeah yeah and so not only is he he kind of just emerges out of the blue in all of this um, but in a very traditional way and you can see it going back to Ignatius and really what's called the school of John um, he does it totally in an exegetical key. Hmm. You know, as theology, as the theological tradition continues in the centuries thereafter, inevitably it kind of becomes turned in upon itself and begins reflecting upon itself and it right. develops its own discourse. Inevitably, that's just part of the nature of things. And you start using shorthand things to express different things, but you don't have any of that with Irenaeus because he's at the beginning of all of that. Yeah, right. yeah. So it's totally in this exegetical key. Mm -hmm. I'd say origin is as well. Um, so... With Irenaeus, you learn to see how theology is done exegetically and how exegesis is not, not something other than theology. Right. Yeah? Which I think is our biggest predicament today, totally our biggest predicament. What we've done over the last couple of centuries is to systematize theologies. You know, systematic theology is a modern product. Even Thomas Aquinas wasn't doing it, you know, in the way that we do it today. Yeah? It's got its points, but not, not in the way we do it. We've extracted the theological reflection of the early centuries from the context in which they were being worked, which in the exegetical context, the liturgical context, the ascetic context, the whole, the whole thing. Mm -hmm. We've extracted, if you like, kind of the, the bones of that, or, or what we think are the bones. We've built that into a system, and then we try and combine it with a way of reading scripture, which is completely different, mm. And it really doesn't fit. Yeah. <laughs> it actually doesn't fit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that the the way that a lot of people view the early church is that they're it's all philosophy and it's all. No, they never read it. Yeah. <laughs> Simply, they've never read Irenaeus yeah. or Athanasius or Origen. Yeah. yeah. You know, you, we, we're starting off with the character, and those characters kind of come from Harnack and other people like yeah. that. 
who are also a product of that systematization of theology. You know, th what they think theology is is a systematic, dogmatic reflection, and what scriptural exegesis is something else. Right. And therefore, well, where does the systematic reflection come from? Well, it must be the Greek spirit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah? It must be the Greek philosophical spirit doing this, that, and the other. Yeah. Um, whereas we know what exegesis is and what it should be. Right. But they haven't actually read the early church to see what the way they're doing exegesis yeah. and theological reflection in and through that. The, the, the most um, dra drastic or dramatic statement I've ever found on that is in Richard Hansen's book, The Search for the Christian yeah. Doctrine of God. Mm -hmm where he says uh, that, the, that having gone through about 900 pages of, of developing the Christian doctrine of God as it was articulated in the 4th century, in his final pages, like 489, 448, 449, he says, of course, the writers of this period were completely inept interpreters of Scripture. Hmm. They tried to force their doctrine of God into their interpretation of Scripture, uh, they didn't know what they were doing. They they didn't take seriously the historical background of each writer of scripture. Then he continues, of course, in doing this, they were only doing what everybody else was doing, going back to the apostles and the, and the Jewish exegetes. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so the apostles are doing this, the evangelists are doing this, the churches continue to do this, and that's not the right way to do exegesis. Right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> yeah, really. that's great. So that, that actually leads us into, I was going to want to talk a little bit about your uh, two-volume work, The Way to Nicaea and mm -hmm. Nicene Faith, which is two parts. So it's really three two parts. volumes, but yeah. three parts. But yeah. yeah. Um, so let's talk through that a little bit, because I thought what was interesting, we had a little conversation before this, you know, you don't call that book a work on the Trinity. You, you no. explicitly say, no, this is, a develop this is talking about the development yeah. of doctrine and the conversation yeah. going up to Nicaea, not the Trinity proper. So what were you doing in Way to Nicaea and, and through Irenaeus, and, and how do you... So those books, so I did my doctoral work on Irenaeus when I finished 95, and then I started teaching, and I taught for about six years um, in a more, in the way I'd inherited it, which was basically teaching question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know. This is the Father, this is his life, this is the works, he didn't hear 10 points of his theology. This is what he does about the Trinity, this is what he does about Christology, and so on and so on, or J&D Kelly, you know, that, that kind of work. Um, and as I was teaching that year in, year out, I began to get ever more into the particular Fathers and realise this was not adequately representing what they were saying. Yeah? It's only later I really began to methodically reflect on it. So the method methodological reflection is not quite there in Way to Nicaea and Nicene Faith. What is there is an attempt to present each figure. So apart from the opening chapter, um, every chapter is devoted to a particular figure. It just right. tries to expound their view, vision of theology in their own terms. Yeah? Um, which they're not working with the terms that we, or the categories that we use. We've, as I mentioned earlier, we've systematized trin uh, theological reflection, and in that system we've got particular categories, you know, Trinitarian theology, Christology, incarnation, ecclesiology, what, whatever it might be, creation, fall, salvation, whatever it might be, we've got these categories, and then we read these fathers for these categories. Right. Well, they weren't thinking in those categories. You know, even the very way that we say the 4th century is a Trinitarian debate, followed by the Christological debates of the 5th and 6th century. Really? <laughs> Did anybody in the 4th century think they were engaged in a Trinitarian debate? And did Cyril of Alexandria wake up and say, okay, they've done Trinity, let's move on to Christology? It's our categories and the way that they're presented in handbooks of dogma and theology which 
which we then imposed upon chronology, Trinity followed by Christology. Right. Yeah, it's not working like that. So they're not engaged in a Trinitarian debate. Um, they are really working out how it is, who this Christ is, and how Scripture speaks about him. So if Christ is the wisdom of God, and wisdom says of herself, the Lord created me, well, is he created or not? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Aries would, would conclude, yeah, he's created. Not like the other creatures, but he's created. He's divine, but not like true God. And so you end up with some kind of intermediate divinity. Athanasius will respond and say, no, you've got to differentiate between Christ as both divine and human. You've got to reflect on how scripture speaks about him as both divine and human. Yeah? And that debate then continues. So it's, it's, it, really, it's a, the, the theological tradition is reflection on the person and work of Christ in the light of his passion through the opening of the scriptures in this exegetical but also liturgical context. He's known through the opening of scriptures and the breaking of the bread. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And it's continuing reflection and deepening of that reflection all the way through. Yeah, so let's, let's expand on that a little bit too because we were talking about the difference between using the phrase God the Son and the Son of God. Yeah. yeah so go ahead and explain what, what you think so, about that. So most that. of the reflection that you have in this time is, is really grammatical. Yeah, the Lord created me the beginning of his ways. So Origen would say, wisdom is the first title of Christ, because wisdom says the Lord created me the beginning of his ways. Ah, he. Okay, straightforwardly. Um, they pay attention to grammar in a way in which we just don't, typically don't do. Yeah? So clearly the most fundamental Christian confession is that the Lord Jesus Christ is Son of God. Yeah, that's just the most basic thing you could possibly say. Son of God, yeah? Or ios tu theu. Well, grammatically, son of God is not equivalent to God the Son. Yeah, when you say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God who's three, really, grammatically, that's essentially modalism. Hmm. You've got God as Father, God as Son, God as Spirit, one God who is as three. God the Son is not the same grammatically as son of God. And in fact, I don't think you can even really say, and you certainly don't find it, God the son in Greek. It's always o eos tu theou. Mm-hmm. Okay, so think about it. If you say son of God, that means that, um, you know, grammatically it's x of y, mm-hmm. just straightforwardly, yeah? Well, that also means x is not y, period. So Christ is not God, with the immediate qualification that as son of God, he is everything that it is to be God. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So homoousios, he's homoousios, one essence and so on. Um, as son of God, he is whatever it is to be God, as son. Mm-hmm. He's the son of God. Uh, and it's because he's son of God that God is <coughs> Father. Mm-hmm. So the, the creed, I believe in one God, the Father, Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and one Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, about whom we say all the things that we say. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Um, true God of true God, homoousios, all the things that we, might, we, we say in the second article of the Creed. That thing, one God, I uh, believe in one God, Father Almighty. You know, we tend to think of these as being random strings of words. Origen points out that for God to be Almighty, um, how does he put it? He, he, he puts it is, he, he points out that scripture frequently says things like, um, in wisdom you have created all things. Yeah? Through the word he creates all things. By the word he creates all things. Well, that means that 
he must, as Arjun points out, he must be father before he's almighty. Mm. Logically, not we're talking grammar. Logically, not temporally. Yeah. Mm. So, so it, it, the, the the titles we have: one God, Father Almighty, is a logical sequence of uh, t- titles attributed to one God. Yeah. Yeah. In in a coherent order. There's meaning to it, mm-hmm. not just random words we say. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so tell me why you're not an adoptionist when you say that. <laughs> uh, because Jesus, you're you're not. But, but. Because Jesus Christ is true God of true God. Yeah. So Billion. that's that's where when you uh, say he's that. Son are, of God and as son of God, yeah. he's everything it is to be God. Yeah. Period. Yeah. 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 So yeah, when you say that, I know people's triggers are going to be going off saying this is adoptionist language. How can you? How not can say? it be adoptionist language? Adoptionist language be you know a man's been adopted as God. Mm-hmm. Whatever that might mean. Right. Yeah. No, he is God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we could talk more about that is, because that's a really interesting uh, uh, statement as well. Um, but, but, but before we come to that, he's son of God, uh, therefore he's whatever it is to be God, and so there is only one divine usia, mm-hmm. essence, nature, whatever word you want to use, yeah? which um, in Greek you would call theotis, divinity. In the older English you would tend to say, translate it as Godhead. Mm-hmm. I stopped using the word Godhead, because I realized that people didn't, students didn't know what it really meant. Hmm. They talk about Godhead, they talk about the monarchy of the Father and the headship and all the rest. No, Godhead simply means like manhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same word, it's an abstract noun. So divinity, Godhead, divinity, Theotis, is an abstract noun, the one who seer. But the one who seer is not the one God. It is whatever God is, Christ is as well. Is, period. Right. Yeah? So we say that Christ is the Son of God, um, and then you've you've also got the, the other kind of most fundamental basic Christian confession is that the one Lord Jesus Christ is Son of God and therefore God, yeah. So Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God, or Kyrios mou, Kyrios mou, he uses the article there. It's not just an answer; it's Otheos. Um, he is God become man, mm-hmm. and that's a really interesting statement which we never really reflect on. Yeah, um, he is God become man. Now, what we tend to do in modern theology is to make, as it were, make a chronological distinction between them. Yeah? So almost all modern theology talks about the pre-incarnate word, who then becomes man. Yeah. Yeah? Um, but remember, the grammatical statement is, one Lord Jesus Christ is God become man. Yeah? And that's all the creeds. One, one God the Father, one Lord Jesus Christ, and so on, who, who is Son of God, became man, born of Mary, and so on and so on. Okay? Um, what we've done is to actually change the subject from the one Lord Jesus Christ to the Word of God. Yeah, because we've got a Trinitarian theology, we start with the Trinity rather than with Christ, we start with the Trinity, we start with the Word of God, and then we say, the Word of God, who is with the Father from all eternity, became man and became Jesus. Mm-hmm. We've changed the subject. And we've changed the subject in a really kind of difficult way, in the sense that if you're going to talk about the word of God before he became Jesus, you've introduced time. Hmm. Yeah? You, you actually made him a temporal being um, who did this, this, and then did this, which doesn't work. That, that, that's mythological. Um, and not as it mythological, you'd end up in some kind of Nestorian Christology because you'd have to have a prosopon for the word of God other than the prosopon of the one Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. In order to talk about them as doing this before doing this. That doesn't hold. No, the statement is, one Lord Jesus Christ who is God become man. The, the priority of the is God to become man is not a chronological priority, as if there were time in God, which there isn't. God's outside of time. It's a logical priority. This is who he is, 
we're not adoptionists, this is who he is, this is what he's done. Mm-hmm. Yeah? So ontologically, the is has priority over the become, but in reverse, it, um, the become has epistemological priority over the is. It's only on the base of what he's done that we can say who he is. Mm. So you're saying he's, he, is, he is Jesus who became a man, not he became Jesus when he became a man. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. Turn, that One Lord Jesus Christ. The sub, the every the the, the, the Nicene Creed, the Constantinopolitan Creed, even the creed of uh, the, the definition of Chalcedon, starts off one God the Father, one Lord Jesus Christ, and everything is said about this one Lord Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Even by the time you get to Chalcedon, where it's got Nicaea and Constantinople, don't even mention the Word of God. Mm. They just don't use a term. They just don't do it. We substitute it in there in our mental framework, mm-hmm. but the creed it doesn't doesn't say that. In the, in in Chalcedon definition, it's got logos as one of the titles of him: mm-hmm. Lord God, Son, Logos. It's a title of Christ. Logos is a title of the one Lord Jesus Christ. Mm. Yeah. Whereas we we we've we've made it the subject. And then, then come to Jesus. And, that, and that's how even Justin Martyr, the, the so-called Lagos Christology, that's actually what him. he's doing. It's a title of him. Yeah, yeah and they were all working with titles yeah. before Nessie. Um, and that's most, most explicitly in the Johannine material. Yeah, you know, so so we, 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 we get this, the idea of starting with the Lagos, because we've got the, the Johannine Gospel, uh, the, the prologue. Yeah, in the beginning was the word, and so. By the way, this is a preview to your to your new book <laughs> yeah. that just came so out. So go new, ahead. And, yeah, I've got a new book coming. Out. We'll talk more about it in a minute. But um, the the um, Gospel of John, um, although it starts off with that prologue in that way, its conclusion is that all this is written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, mm. the Son of God, and believing of life in His name. And then in the Apocalypse, which I, I do think is actually written by the same John. You know, it's debated, but I think it is, and the, the second century uniformly held that it was. The logos, the term logos, is a title of the one on the horse, mm. the rider on the white horse with the road dipped in blood. Logos is a title of the crucified and risen Lord. Even Athanasius in the fourth century, when he writes a work on the incarnation, which is not about how Jesus is born of Mary, it's got, he, he takes a body from the Virgin so he can die on the cross. It's all about that. Um, he says in the beginning of the, it's a two-part work, in the beginning of the first part of the work, he says that I'm going to show that the one on the cross is the word of God, and therefore the Christian faith is not allogos, irrational. Mm-hmm. It's not, he doesn't write it to show that the logos of God ascended the cross. So one on the cross is a subject, yeah? and he's the word of God. Yeah. So the point the point is not Mary. The point is him. Whereas well, we, no, we uh, tend to focus so much on we, we tend to think of incarnation as being you know the second person is now born of Mary in that way, and we and we, we we just kind of jump into it without realizing the sophistication in which both the gospels are written, um, and the theological reflection continues thereafter. So going back to the prologue, if the title logos is a title of Jesus Christ. Then you can actually read the Gospels, the prologue, as Irenaeus does, in the beginning is Jesus Christ. Yeah. And Jesus Christ is prostontheon, and Jesus Christ is God. Yeah. Now, what that word beginning means, enarchi in ologos, the word archi, whatever it means, it doesn't mean a chronological beginning. It's translated into Latin as in principium, not in initium. Yeah. In first place, in authority, on the throne as the origin of all things, you know, the, the source, that's what it's talking about, not mm-hmm. a chronological thing. So in first place is Jesus, 
Jesus is prostantheon. Well, why pros? You know, if you read modern theologians or scriptural exegetes that always talk about the movement within the Trinity and so on, you should look at the Gospel of John to understand what he means by prostantheon. Because throughout the whole of the Gospel, Jesus is going to the Father. I'm going to the Father, but not yet. I'm about to go. Now I'm really going. Soon you won't see me anymore, but I'll be back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then Thomas's, the Gospel finishes with Thomas's confession, my Lord and my God, it's an epilogue after that, but my Lord and my God, that's the, the, the culminating point, um, which is a final clause of the first verse. So the first verse really is a summary of the whole Gospel. Mm, mm-hmm. yeah, and you can do that all the way through the prologue. Um, the most interesting one, this can be the most provocative one, but it's now, now in print, um, is the word became flesh we automatically think that that's John's equivalent of the infancy narratives. Yeah, that's how we've, you know, the word is in the beginning, now becomes flesh, but then we ask ourselves, well, well why was he in the world before then? Why was the world rejecting him a few verses earlier? Well, the, the, the verses of the prologue must be out of order, let's rearrange them, or whatever, yeah. whatever you know, the kind of stuff Boltman and others would do. Um, if you were to say, Jesus becomes flesh, yeah, if putting the word that Bart does this, actually, um, that he, he's very emphatic that Logos is a title of Jesus and standing in that. So if you'd say Jesus becomes flesh, what on earth would that mean? Hmm. Well, we all assume that flesh is simply human nature. He takes a body, a body like ours, and we know we're not Apollinarian, so we know it means flesh and spirit. <laughs> yeah. hmm. um, but again, we're not taking our lead from the Gospel of John. Because in the Gospel of John, you've got a whole chapter in which Christ is telling you what his flesh is. Yeah, John oh, John 6. six. Yeah, you've got the whole chapter. I mean, whether our Lord himself is telling us what his flesh is, and it's full of things like, you know, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have life. Yeah? And then the flesh and blood I will give you. It's future tense. It's yet to ascend the cross. And it's uh, flesh and blood the bre- of the Son of Man descending from heaven, the heavenly bread and all the rest of it. Well, when he says, if you eat and drink my flesh and blood, is he seriously asking us to pull his arm off and eat it? <laughs> yeah. right? That would be cannibalism. That's, that's obviously not what he's talking about. Um, and that would only be possible for those there on the day. So what he's talking about as being his flesh is that which he gives us as a result of the passion. He ascends across. And as man, he, as- he dies on a cross. He ascends into heaven, into the consuming fire that is God. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and he, in his human nature, in that consuming fire that is God, sitting on the right hand of the Father, shares in all the properties of that fire, beyond space and time, is available today as his life-giving flesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Um, in John, in the early church, it's not just simply the sacrament of the Eucharist, it's also sharing in his passion. You know, when he asks, can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? Yeah. He means going to take up the cross with him. Um, is also um, the the bread of life is also we have to chew on it and that chewing is kind of a, a reference to a, a, um, scriptural exegesis you've got mm-hmm. to chew the origin will take it that way you've got to chew the card you've got to be nourished by the by the flesh of 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 the word which is which is a scripture and all that kind of thing so so it's all bound up together like that now when you read John that way the prologue that way it actually makes a lot more sense so it's uh, from verse six to verse 18 it is about John the Baptist there was a man sent to bear witness and it ends with John the Baptist he's in the world but he's not the light um, Christ, is, uh, Christ is in the world the world rejects him 
But to those who receive him, he gives the power to become children of God, born of God, not of the flesh of the of the of, of the will of man. The only ones to be said to be born of God in the Gospel of John, it's not the Logos, but us. We are born of God mm. if we receive him, baptism, and the word became flesh and dwelt in us. Eucharist, we've seen his glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, We become his body. Yeah, so how does that... Um... It's a provocative reading of the yeah. prologue, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it coheres actually more with what was uh, the way that it was being read in the early church. Yeah, Yeah. so how does that, how does that apply to... Uh, you know, you have like the different categories we use for body. The church is the body. Yeah. So know. we, be, because of our systematization and, you know, through the, through the course of history and so on, we talk about, you know, the body of Christ as the, the physical body that's walking around Judea for 30 odd years, you know. And then we talk about the Eucharist as being the sacramental body, the corpus mysterium, and then the church as a body of Christ. Um, and we've separated all these things out. We might think of them, maybe they've got some kind of analogous relationship to each other. In the other church, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely the same thing. When Paul says, you are the body of Christ and members of it, is he talking analogously? No, he's talking directly. Yeah. Yeah? You have to remember, Paul also is writing before the Gospels are written. We tend to read the Gospels first and then come to Paul. Mm-hmm. And so we think Paul's referring back to the Gospels. But no, he's writing before the Gospels and he's telling the believers, you are the body of Christ, individually members of it. Yeah? A few decades later, Ignatius points out, uh, the head cannot be born without the body. Mm. Yeah? So, so um, when we're talking about incarnation, it also includes us. We're his body. Yeah, we become his body through baptism and Eucharist and taking up the cross and doing all the kind of things we'll spend much more time talking about. And then you also have to say that that is also represented in the way that the infancy narratives talk about his birth from Mary. Yeah, it's not the evangelists were there taking notes on the day and whatever. We have to remember that all the Gospels, all four Gospels, are, this is the best way I can phrase it, scripturally mediated memory in the light of the Passion. Hmm. Yeah, the disciples in, in all four gospels, the disciples just don't understand. Yeah, even in the Gospel of John, where Christ is you know, telling them so much more, they don't understand. They just don't get it. John would keep on telling you that you know afterwards they understood when they went back to read Scripture. Yeah, you've got on the road to Emmaus, the Scriptures are open. They finally get it. They finally recognize him. They know him in the breaking of the bread, and he disappears. Mm-hmm. Why does he disappear? Because we're his body. Hmm. If we're his body, how could I see him somewhere else? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's all bound up together. Mm-hmm. So, yes, they were with him for all that time, and they did whatever they did with him. They went up the mountain. They saw him working miracles. They met his mother. All of that. But it's only in the light of the passion, when the scriptures are open, that they finally get it. So, what we've got in the gospels is scripturally mediated memory. Yeah, it actually says it even puts it that way in in John, when his entrance into Jerusalem, uh, this is, it says the disciples not understand this at first, but afterwards they remembered that it had been written about him. This is it's scripturally mediated memory. Afterwards, in the light of the passion, and so the way we speak about his birth, and, the, and Matthew and Luke already do this, is already in the light of his passion. Mm-hmm. Bethlehem, house of bread. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh, a dead divine lord. Mm-hmm. Yeah? The fact that um, we celebrate his birth nine months after the date of his passion. 25th of March initially is not the date of annunciation. It's uh, the Roman equivalent of the 14th of Nisan, the date of the passion. Yeah? 
and then you calculate nine months back to get the date of initiation. But it's a different, yeah. different story. <laughs> we, we start off backwards. Right. Yeah. Which, is, which is what we... And we start off backwards because we've inherited a whole load of yeah, things, right. which is good. We've inherited a whole liturgical cycle, you know, uh, with Christmas and with Pascha, e- Easter. Um, but because we've inherited it, we think about these as being two different things rather than aspects of the same thing. Yeah. We've inherited a whole bunch of theological reflection and we've, we've passed it all out into different tongues and all this, rather than seeing how they're all integrally related in that scriptural mystery of the one Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah. So how does, how does origin play into all this? You talk about how you know, Irenaeus, you talked yeah. earlier about his importance. Origin is a very polarizing figure. You just came out with your Oxford translation yeah. introduction to him and, and you tend to take a more favorable view of him than some people do. So talk about that a little bit. So, you know, people have had a bifurcated view of origin. On one hand, they like, some people like anyway, the scriptural exegesis that he's done. And on the other hand, they, he's, he's written his work on first principles, which is full of platonic mythology about freaks and souls falling into bodies and all the rest of it. Um, the real problem with that is that it starts with the edition of Kurtishow in the early part of the 20th century and then Butterworth's translation of Kurtishow's edition. Is that what Kurtishow did was to... Det- he, he, he started off with a determination that the real teaching of origin is what was condemned at the Fifth Council in the 6th century. That's the real teaching of origin. Mm-hmm. Refinus, because Refinus actually acknowledges that he hasn't simply translated, he's made emendations and so on. But it's interesting how he says he made emendations only with regard to things like the relationship between father and son. He actually says, when, whenever origin seems to say novel and unusual things about souls, I've left it because it doesn't matter to the faith. Hmm. Okay? <laughs> and all the condemnation in the sixth century primarily about priests and souls falling into bodies and all the rest of it. Um, so he then, the way he did his edition was to take all of those passages condemning origin or reporting originistic teaching and put it in the middle of on first principles within the text. Yeah. It doesn't do justice to what mm. origin is actually doing there. We've only got Refinus's Latin translation. That's the only integral text we've got. That has to be the starting point. You have to try and make sense of what this is and how this is working. And when you do that, really appears quite different yeah. really appears quite different so what would be your what would be your uh, your summary of origin's importance in the early church oh, based on your own your own reflection there you know Gregory of Nazianzus St. Gregory the Theologian refers to origin as being the whetstone of us all yeah uh, the, the whetstone is the one you sharpen your knife and yeah. cut, cut your teeth on and all that kind of thing um, Another way, actually a better way of putting it. My wife used to ask me, where would I put the different fathers on a football team? Hmm. Yeah, soccer. Okay. You not know, American football. Yeah, not American football, English football, soccer, real football. You know, <laughs> you, you'd, put, um, you'd put Epiphanius in attack, you'd put Jerome in attack, you'd put Irenaeus in defence, you'd put Dionysus way out on their field somewhere, <laughs> you know, and that kind of thing. And my answer would be that Origen was the schoolboy who picked up the ball and ran with it. He invented the game rugby. He got kicked off the team, but everybody played rugby thereafter. Wow, yeah. yeah. So really, you cannot understand theological reflection after origin without knowing origin. Right. They're all working in and through and with him, um, thinking out things as he's laid them out. Not everything he said is right. You know, that's simply the case goes for anybody. Um, but he, he brought his absolute genius to his his um, exposition of the scriptures and his way to think about 
um, this more coherently. So the book On First Principles is not working out you know, a systematic philosophical theology. It is trying to understand how and why scripture speaks as it does and then to coordinate the ways in which it speaks. So the one about Father Almighty that I mentioned earlier, straight out of origin, mm -hmm. which is uh, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Um, uh, what he did in articulating how the title Father must be older than the title Almighty, because it's in wisdom he makes all things, older meaning logically, not chronologically, that becomes fundamental for all Christian faith thereafter. Yeah. It's a very essence, you know, it's a very first line of the creed. Mm -hmm. That's origin. So he's later he's later condemned, but you'd say Athanasius and Basil oh, and all loved, loved him would not absolutely have, yeah, would not have wanted. So to condemn Athanasius him. Um, refers to the labor loving origin who defended the term right. Homoousios. Right. Basil and Gregory, you know, they were brought up in Christian families in traditions which go back to origin himself. They went to school in Athens, rediscovered their faith, came back, and what the first thing they did when they came back was to go into retreat and read Origen and make an extract of their favorite parts of his work. <laughs> yeah, a little bit different than the way that we now yeah. try to remember him. Yeah, absolutely. Remember him. So in your Nicene faith, the part two, so you had the Way to Nicaea, part one, yeah. 2001, 2004, you had the two-part uh, Nicene faith. Give a little summary of, of that development there and what you were trying, what you were trying to say with the second part. Um, you know, it's not the development of systematic theology. Yeah. It is a continuing exegetical reflection on the person of Christ, his yeah. work, and how God's revealed in that. You yeah. know? And that to categorize it then as Trinitarian theology followed by Christology just doesn't do justice to it. Um, and we really, really do need to learn again the integrity of, of theology um, and its exegetical dimensions. Yeah, and how would you... you you've used the, the uh, illustration of a symphony with all these authors. Yeah. So explain that. That's a really helpful illustration, I think. So because we think we know what theology is, and the way it's been systematized in you know, our handbooks of theology, which are all presented in the abstract, we think we know what it is. And then we read the theological tradition, the early church, the fathers, for anticipations of this. You know, we read Irenaeus to see how he anticipated Nicaea, or... Uh, I don't know, Athanasius to see how he anticipated Chalcedon. Well, you know, we just read a series of anticipations and developing towards a fullness that we think we know. Well, if we're doing that, we're not actually reading them. Yeah. Another way of reading it would be uh, what in Orthodox circles is called the neopatristic synthesis. Mm -hmm. you know, so coming out into the West after the Revolution, uh, rediscovering the faith in, the, in, in, this, in this Western context, they, and following, following actually what people like Danielu and others were doing, it talked about the neopatristic synthesis, where you know you read a bit of this father for Trinitarian theology, a bit of this father for Christology, and making a nice big synthesis out of it all. Again, you're not really reading each and every one of them. So what I'd rather do is to read each father on their own terms, as fully and as possibly as I can, to actually hear their distinctive voice. They're all distinctive figures. Yeah? And then I would think about theology, the history of theology, as being a symphony. Okay? And the, the advantage of a, the word symphony over synthesis is that a symphony is polyphonous. By definition, it's symphony, but it's polyphonous. Um, and it's polyphonous both synchronically and diachronically. It's polyphonous at any given time. Different figures, you've got the three Cappadocians, but they're all different voices. Right. Yeah. One's a and violin, one's a piano. Yeah. yeah. They've got similarities and whatever else, but they're, they're distinct voices. If you're not listening to each one, you're not reading any of them. Okay. And then you've got uh, polyphony over time. Irenaeus is not Maximus. 
very similar in many ways, but, you know, writing in an exegetical 2nd century context in a more philosophical 6th century context, fine. Um, so if you want to take part, if you want to become a theologian, if you want to do theology, we all should, to whatever degree we can, the only way you can take part in a symphony is by going back and reading the score of the earlier movements. Mm. Yeah, And I'll say the earliest movement, those initial centuries, are the most fundamental because it sets a pattern for everything that follows thereafter. Okay, So when we go back and read these particular figures as historical witnesses to the faith in their own given time context and so on, um, by doing that, by learning to see everything as Irenaeus did it, everything is Origen did it, everything is Athenaeus did it, we ourselves become harmonized to that symphony so that we can sing our part today, which may be different than what went before, but be part of the same symphony. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, the difficulty is how to hear it as a symphony, not as a cacophony of, of conflicting voices. Yeah. And that's the art of theology. But I think if you start with the crucified and risen Lord, as proclaimed by the apostles in accordance with scripture, being this is what we're doing, this is what we're reflecting on, this is what we, you can actually then see it as a symphony. Yeah. In a sense, the, the, the crucified and risen Lord proclaimed by the apostles in accordance with scripture, encountered in the breaking of the bread, that really is like the canon, the criterion, the, the fundamental guideline. And it's that which is being handed down through all the generations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so it's not to say, yeah, you, you don't want to say on the one extreme, they are contradictory of one another, at odds with one another. You don't want to go the other way and say they're all saying the same thing. Yeah. You want to say they're all working in the same theological universe yeah. or whatever you want to and say. They're and they're all part of a symphony. And they're relying on each other a little bit here. Yeah, it's, all in dialogue, it's all in dialogue, discourse, mm-hmm. and all the rest of it, yeah. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, let's talk a little bit. You preempted a little bit, but your, your yeah. book on John that just just came out, maybe a short, yeah. short so summary actually, of that. Actually, before that, sure. um, so you, you, because we were talking about the Wait and I See the Nicene Faith, my goal had been to write another book thereafter called The to Chalcedon and beyond, yeah, that would have gone through Chalcedon up to Dionysius and then another book from Dionysius to Maximus, John of Damascus. But as I was writing, as I was preparing for that, uh, I realized I had to write a work on Diodor of Tarsus and Theodor of Mopsuestia, because nobody worked on them, gather their texts, the, the quote quotations from them in other people, edit them and do all that kind of thing. And then as I was working more on that, I realized that Really, to get to grips with the 5th, 6th century, you had to get to grips with Evagrius. But to get to grips with Evagrius really meant going back to origin, <laughs> to really go back to on first principles and work on that that result in there. And then I realised in order to do, to do all of this really fully, you actually have to go yeah, back John. to John. Yeah. <laughs> you have to go back to John. And obviously Paul as well, but uh, you know, one thing at a time. Um, and so um, the result of all that is, is a book on John, yeah, which was written at the same time as preparing the origin stuff. Um, it's a huge book, some 200,000 words, twice the length of a doctoral thesis, and it's in three parts. The first part is um, what I've learnt from Irenaeus and others, especially Irenaeus, uh, because he's really the last representative of what J.B. Lightfoot called the school of John. It makes a really interesting point that, that there are a number of figures in the second century who look back to John as a concrete initiator. So Irenaeus looks back to Polycarp. Yep. He sat at the foot of Polycarp. Polycarp sat at the foot of John. Mm-hmm. Yeah? You don't get anybody doing that for, for Paul or Matthew or whoever. You just don't do that. It's John. John's got a school. So Lightfoot says, you know, Peter and Paul, they founded commu- and organized communities. John founded a school. Hmm. So because I spent the last 
20, 30 years working in Irenaeus and Origen. Yeah, I know the school, I know the theology. So how does John look in that light? Yeah? And what's really striking is they look back to John as the high priest of the Paschal mystery. Part of their canon was to keep the observance of Pascha, Easter, on the 14th of Nisan, following John. Hmm. Yeah? So those modern scholars who say that John's work is totally incarnational, he's got no place for the passion in his, narrat- in his gospel narrative. Ernest Keisman, you know, the, the passion is an appendix which he couldn't really fit into his gospel. Right. It's just completely wrong. Yeah? So exploring all of that, how does John look in that? Yeah? Uh, the second part is um, modern exegetical, engagement with modern exegetical scriptural scholarship where you know, Kaisman, Boltman and so on, but especially uh, John Ashton. John Ashton's work on John is really, really fascinating. But now knowing that John is a Paschal Gospel, you can do even more than John Ashton did. Yeah, um, About, especially with Christ's words on the cross, it is finished. What is finished? Yeah, we tend to hear, you know, I d- we tend to hear like the synoptics. My work's done, it's come to an end, I'm dying. Into your hands I commend my spirit. No, he says it's finished to teleste, which means it's perfected, it's right. completed, it's brought to con- conclusion. And he doesn't simply hand over, the, give up the ghost, he hands over the spirit, not his spirit, the spirit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's finished? And I trace that back to um, the temple is finished, very clear in the Gospel of John, it's the most liturgical of all the Gospels, and then the human being. Here, finally, we've got a true human being. In. And then how that plays into the question of the Son of Man, as resolving or working on, on the questions involved in the Son of Man, the Gospel of John, and then the prologue, which we've already done. Mm-hmm. Then the third part is Michel Henri, who's a French phenomenologist who died a few years ago. Somebody gave me a book on Michel Henri uh, ten years ago, uh, a book by Michel Henri called I Am the Truth. And it was so fascinating absolutely fascinating what he does his last three books before he died one of them was published posthumously I was really a, medit- a philosophical reflection on the gospel of John in a phenomenological key and what he does um, is aligns so much with what I've found in the early church what, what life is what flesh is and all the other kind of things that it was a natural part to do this to, mm-hmm. to, so I spent many years rereading Western philosophy to understand how Henri was doing what he did and all that kind of thing um, so you've got three different parts in, the gospel, uh, in, in this book in the Gospel of John historical, scriptural, philosophical each done according to their own discipline and within the canons of their own discipline but then trying to put them all into dialogue with each other mm-hmm. three, three readers of John and trying to get them to talk to each other yeah. as an act of theology a symphony of John a symphony, of reader, <laughs> a symphony of readers of John yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's really, and that's with Oxford University Oxford. Press. It's now out in England. It came out in England a few weeks ago, and it should be available in America within the next couple of weeks. Okay, yeah. So let's talk a little bit too. I'm fascinated by Saint Vladimir's Press because I came aware of this seminary. I became aware of you through the Popular Patristic series, and which I'm sure was part of the goal. Um, but it is fascinating that I, I, I would have thought. St. Vladimir's Press, as much impact as these books have had that have come out of it, the popular patristics, I don't know anybody who cares about patristics that doesn't know it and yeah. own it. Um, and then I come here, and it's a small little campus with 100, yes. 100 students. And yes. it's amazing, the, the, the outsize is probably not the right word, but just the influence the, 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 of, the, of the press. Yeah. So how, how would you, what would you attribute to that? What's sort of the, the goal of the press? Well, the, and, the, yeah. the good work we do. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> really, it's simple as that, the Fair good enough. work we do. Um, 
I guess you haven't been reading as much, I know, Schmemann on liturgical theology or other works like that, but, you know, in, in all those different fields, we've, we've published really good work in English. Um, so we're the main English-speaking Orthodox press, because mm-hmm. we publish a lot of Orthodox theology in that, but part of our tradition is the Fathers, um, and they had published a few volumes. I don't even think they even called it the Popular Patristic Series when I took it over back in the mid-'90s, whenever mm-hmm. it was. And we've just been working hard at that. Yeah. And I remember yeah. the the copyrights used to say Crestwood, and now it's Yonkers. Did the seminary move, or did the printing press move? Or? It's a clarification. No, no, it's a clarification. Crestwood is a legal, is a legal oh. fiction. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. We're actually in the city of Yonkers. Crestwood's a neighborhood, but it's got no... Mm. Uh, no status as a village or a town. Or it doesn't have its own post office or zip code or anything no, like that. Yeah. No, so we're in fact in Tuckahoe as well. So Yonkers isn't even... Yonkers, isn't even Yonkers, Yonkers is correct. a city, Tuckahoe's a town. I think gotcha. that's the way it goes. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just found that interesting. I was like, did they move? or? <laughs> yeah, or, um, yeah it's, it's, it's really fascinating how much influence you all have had. And I guess, uh, is the church, the, the Orthodox Church as a whole, um, sort of all coming into this press. You said it's the leading English producer for yeah, your church. So for many getting... years it was the only real one. Yeah. It's still the leading one. Um, our works gets translated into all languages. Mm-hmm. We tend not to do too many translations of other languages. Occasionally we do. But maybe increasingly we do. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. It's probably yeah. more interesting to me than it is to you because you're here in some ways. <laughs> yeah, but, we're just part of it. Yeah. Okay, so I want to ask you about the Eastern Orthodox Church a little bit. So you grew up in Orthodox, yeah. as you said. Uh, my big question is why. Have you ever thought about Protestantism, Catholicism, you know, any of those other denominations? Well, you know, I mentioned earlier that you know, for most of my teenage years, I didn't go to church. So you know, I left and came back and so on. I would say, uh, no, I haven't considered moving to another church. I would say that the, the real genius of the Orthodox Church is that it's kept its post a pre-modern uh, ethos, mm. yeah. So our liturgy is still the liturgy of the ancient church. Where you read scripture, still all of that. The iconography in it is still pre-modern. It's not gone through naturalism and historicism and whatever else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so it, it, it's it's the most coherent exposition of all of this. It's mm. the most coherent body of all of this. Period. Yeah, that's really that's helpful to know. Yeah. So so for you, you feel like. Um, it's the close. It's, it's the most linear in the tradition that, that you can It's have. a continuous church from the beginning. Yeah, um, but it's kept that what we were talking about earlier. You know, the the whole way in which the theological reflection of the early church is both exegetical and liturgical and ascetic, yeah. and you can't even separate them out mm. in the way that you know they've all fallen apart in the twentieth century. Um, but they're all held together in the liturgy as we still celebrate we never went through a Vatican II reforming movement mm-hmm. yeah, obviously the liturgy has changed over the centuries you know we do things slightly differently and so on but it's still in that pre- pre-modern key so as a Protestant myself and as probably most of my listeners are Protestants what would you say is the one thing the Protestant church should learn from or pull from the Orthodox church that would not make them no longer Protestant but something that they can retrieve from the Orthodox church um, I would say they kind of go hand in hand. What we've been talking about through most of this talk has been about patristic theology. That's what we've been talking about here. Yeah? Uh, the way exegesis and theological affection go together and all that. So you can get that from really immersing yourself in the early church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just on its own thing. But you can also get it by visiting an Orthodox church. Yeah. Yeah, you can actually see how it goes together, mm-hmm. how liturgy is done. Yeah, you know, liturgy is an essential part of all of this. Yeah. yeah? 
um, starting with it with John himself, the way he puts his lit- his gospel together. It's liturgical. It's, it's all marked by different feasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and from the beginning, Christians have been doing this. It's a, the closest thing. If you're going to start doing retrieval, some of the things yeah. that the Orthodox so Church instance, is doing. So, for instance, we're coming up to Feast of Easter. You're celebrating this weekend. We're celebrating the following weekend. Um, when we think about the resurrection, what comes to your mind? Jesus. Coming out of the tomb. Yeah, out of the yeah? tomb. Uh, the Orthodox icon of the resurrection is, it's not Christ being raised. It's Christ standing in the form of the cross, mm-hmm. pulling up Adam and Eve. Yeah. Yeah, it's a human race being pulled up with Christ in the form of the cross. It's always a crucified one in the form of the cross, pulling up Adam and Eve, standing on the gates of hell, which are placed crossways. Yeah. Mm. That's what resurrection is. Mm. If you remember Athanasius on the Incarnation, he talks two reasons why Christ had to die, um, to conquer death and to give knowledge. <clears throat> and then he goes on to Christ's own death and why he had to die on the cross. Then he turns to the resurrection. Do you remember what he says there? He says absolutely nothing about Christ's resurrection appearances to prove that he raised and won all of it. He says a proof of Christ's resurrection is that Christians are now willing to take up the faith of the cross and mm-hmm. trample death underfoot. Mm-hmm. You are his body. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so the corporate so, resurrection. So, so to just see an orthodox, well, it's not even corporate resurrection. Um, it, it, yeah, corporate resurrection. But we, we, it's not corporate resurrection as opposed to something else. It's right. simply this is what it is. That's right. what I mean, yeah? Um, to simply see an orthodox icon of the resurrection and then to think about, okay, what's this showing me about, and it's a depiction of it from the 6th, 7th century onwards, what's this telling me about what resurrection actually is? might then give you a further insight into why Athanasius writes in the way he does, and you can see how it all coheres together. Yeah, that's beautiful, just the the idea of it. I'm going to go look it up after this. (laughs) Okay, Um, okay, so final thing, maybe the most important thing. In your email signature, yeah. you have a bicycle made out of commas and, yeah. and forward slashes. So I'm guessing that you have a, an affinity for cycling. So talk, talk about that. Um, so I, I grew up loving riding bicycles. My father also, my grandfather before, before that. Um, when I came to America, I, I left my bicycles behind. We didn't bring any bicycles with us. And then, I don't know, early 2000s, I started... Uh, developing a passion and uh, for collecting and restoring vintage bicycles, oh, okay. yeah, which I ride, and riding them as well. Mm-hmm. I've also got my bicycle I ride generally, not as much as I'd like to. Maybe once a year. <laughs> I'm more of an armchair cyclist, <laughs> but collecting and restoring vintage bicycles, I absolutely love doing it. You know, collecting parts on eBay, as well, and then building up vintage bicycles from that, um, which is in fact something my grandfather did. He was one of the founding members of. The Southern Veteran, Southern Veteran Vintage Cycle Club. Wow. SVCC, Southern Veteran Cycle Club, yeah. Um, back in the 1930s, 40s in England. Wow. That's what the family tradition, not Absolutely. just. Absolutely. Yeah, so a yeah. lot of people collect cars and restore cars. You, you yeah, no, bicycles. Much, uh, much cheaper on the one hand. Yeah. But, but they're also much more beautiful. Mm. The, the simplicity of a bicycle, you know, it's like one of the most perfect forms of engineering yeah. altogether. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So what would your number one best bicycle ever made? You know, somebody would say uh, an I've old got, Dodge I've got or an one, old I've Chevy. Got one. What's the bicycle? I've got one, a Dursley Peterson. Okay. Yeah, and I've actually got one. I've got a 1914 Dursley Peterson. Okay. Um, if your listeners look it up on the web, and you can actually find a place where you've got my bicycles on the web, uh, a Dursley Peterson, it's built like a, a bridge in a, in a triangular structure with a hammock for hmm. a saddle. So can you actually lean back, lean back in a little bit, kind of. get a little bit of a relaxation? Yeah, it's a really, really interesting ride. Yeah, that's really interesting. 
Well, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time My to pleasure. talk and the time that you gave me before this to talk. My pleasure. And uh, I'm sure our, our audience will appreciate mm -hmm. the insights you've given us. Okay. Thank you very much.